Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. Let's just jump in. Indeed. Because uh, we want to get through this. Um, Let's just I, get through this. Uh, I watched um, a documentary I've been meaning to watch for about five years now um, uh, by Steve James. It's called The Interrupters from 2011, oh, yeah. 2012. Did you ever see it? No, but I've heard great things. It is fantastic. Um it's uh, it's not I mean, as usual with Steve James. It's a very interesting subject matter. If you don't know, it's this. Um, there's a there's a nonprofit called Ceasefire, and they have a group of people who work with them called Violence Interrupters, who are often former gang members or mm. or, or stuff. And their their uh, their mandate, their directive is to get out on the streets and literally get in into the moment and stop stop fights from happening stop mm-hmm. people from getting shot um uh and uh it's it's a pretty pretty incredible uh footage that he gets um and it's uh, it's in, it's in chicago i don't know if i said that um like most of the steve james mm-hmm. <laughs> you know cartemquin films are um so it's uh, it's fascinating and important and people should see it just from that uh point of view but steve james is just such an incredibly talented filmmaker the way that he manages to make to to shoot years of footage um and to winnow it down into something that's so compulsively watchable uh the movie's about two hours and 10 minutes long and it just it just flies by like he's he's really really talented in in uh it must have something to do with because i think he um unlike some of his other films he served as the cinematographer as well i think a lot of and a lot of times he was the only crew member around in a lot of these situations, which probably helped. What about a sound guy? Did um, they have a, or is it? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, yeah, maybe there was a sound guy, but um, I think it, it would have helped get more authentic footage to not have the whole no. uh, uh, rigmarole in, in the way. Um, but, Someone should give that guy an Oscar or even nominate him once. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's crazy. Um, but yeah, it, uh, the interrupters is available on, on Amazon. Uh, it's a really terrific movie. I would recommend checking it out. All right. Uh, so my first one is in fact a rewatch. I rewatched Quentin Tarantino's Django Unchained. Oh, good. Um, I, we were just talking about this movie. Yeah. That's kind of what on an episode that hasn't come up yet. <laughs> yeah. I think that might be what, what put me in mind uh, of it. And, uh, you know, I don't have much else to say. We've talked about it at length over the years. Um, but it is a it is a very i mean obviously there's a lot of anger there there's a lot of frustration there there's a lot of important issues going on but it's still as tends to happen remarkably fun mm-hmm. and you know just that that script is is so solid and just getting the right actors is so key and christoph waltz uh who i discovered because he won best supporting actor and he is actually of all the actors that have ever won that award, he has the most screen time of any of them. Huh. Um, at like 102 minutes. Oh, wow. Uh, now admittedly that movie is well over two hours, but still that's, he's, he's, he's on screen more than he's not, uh, which is uh, rare for a supporting uh, character, which he is a supporting character, I think. Um, so, uh, but of course I also love, DiCaprio, I, I will, I do maintain that this is a career best for him. Um, I would agree. I, and then, uh, but to me, and we, I, am just repeating stuff we've said before, like the most intriguing character 
is Steven, Samuel L. Jackson's character. Huh. Just because how strange is it that DiCaprio's character dies before yeah. Jackson's character? Like, and that Django has as much, if not more, contempt for him. Yeah. Uh, and I think even though one could say that like, but yes, Steven is an old man and he does kind of screw things up for everybody. But at the same time, like he's clearly been a part of this system for so long that it's just become a part. He's now an active participant in it. And I guess I don't, and Django, I don't think he ever calls him, you know, uncle Tom or, or, or a traitor or anything right. like that. But he, he does seem to hold some uh, specific, hatred for him yeah it, it's it's very odd because well at the at the end of the movie he doesn't count steven among the list of black people in the room yeah where he says all the black people leave yeah uh and then doesn't allow steven to leave and when you think about it if you're thinking in terms of rivals dicaprio is actually christoph waltz it's his rival like mm-hmm. the two of them do most of the talking and then when it comes time to kill calvin candy it's actually king schultz that does it right and that as opposed to uh django and steven and so i find that infinitely fascinating and i think that's one of the master strokes of the film um and then i still maintain that when django goes back to the goes back to the mansion like it, there's some nice moments in there certainly visually but to me the peak of the film as far as django's uh, uh arc is when he is talking to those guys from the mining company, including Tarantino and Michael Parks, who's always nice to see. Mm-hmm. And just because we've seen him be great with a gun and we've seen him as he's, you know, uh, putting on this character for, for, uh, candy. Uh, we've seen that. Okay. He's, he's pretty good at this deception thing, but now like he doesn't have King to fall back on. He's thinking completely on his feet, doing everything he can and manages to just swindle these guys completely. Like he, his his transformation from like uh, a slave who hasn't really held a gun before, doesn't really know how to read. He's still very canny, mm-hmm. uh, but his slave his, his role from a guy who has no agency at all uh, to a guy who has complete control over his life and his choices uh, yeah. is complete in that moment, and I like yeah. it a lot. You make me want to watch it again. It's good stuff. All right. Um, I watched a movie that's um, available um, this starting this weekend uh, on Netflix. Um, it's Ava DuVernay's 13th, her, oh, okay. her documentary, which is, um, it's not about the 13th Amendment. It takes the 13th Amendment as its sort of framework uh, and the thesis that it's, it's about, um, basically, I guess it's about institutional racism since the civil war from the Mm -hmm. civil war to present, um, and how, um, the, the 13th amendment, which abolished slavery has a clause that says, except as a punishment for a crime that you've been convicted of, blah, blah, Mm -hmm. blah. Um, and makes the argument that, um, black people since the end of slavery have been repeatedly, uh, criminalized or treated as criminals. And that this is essentially, um, in one way or another kept, uh, slavery or if not slavery in every case at least some sort of uh repression and disenfranchisement alive for mm-hmm. 150 years 
since since slavery, and it makes some really really good infuriating points, um, including um, clips um, from. John Ehrlichman, who is Nixon's uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, advisor of domestic affairs, and of course the um, notorious Lee Atwater, who have yeah. both have been on record blatantly saying that the things that I just said were t- like this isn't conspiracy theory. Yeah. Like this was their plan was to, uh, especially with Lee Atw- Atwater and, or especially with John Ehrlichman and Richard Nixon in the um, the Southern strategy, was mm-hmm. essentially to. Um, Use fear of crime to be as a code as code words for race racism and right. to get more white people out to the polls voting for Republicans yeah. by um, preying on their um, uh, you know already existing fears about black people and crime. Uh, it's pr- it's really infuriating infuriating stuff. Um, there's a reason. I think I really like Ava DuVernay um, here. Um, by the end, I'd say there's a reason, much like Fahrenheit 9-11 coming out when it did, you mm-hmm. know, there's a reason this movie's coming out now. Because by the end, it's like, don't vote for Donald Trump because the things that Donald Trump sure. is saying and the, and the fear-mongering he's doing around race, not, I mean, the, this movie is mostly about black people because it's about slavery. Since yeah. the, fear, the fear-mongering that Donald Trump is doing around race is regressive and is going back, uh, you know, to these things, which still exist. Uh, one of the... Why, be, you know that one of you, Tyler, know that one of one of my pet causes, I guess, is um, like uh, prison reform, and um, yeah. that our justice system is um, <clears throat> so broken that it maybe just needs to. We just need to start over. Like I think it it doesn't work. It's it's fundamentally wrong. Like because it, and the movie makes this point. Like um, it should be the punishment of taking away your liberty should be enough, but then it also becomes punishing once you're in prison and then you get out of prison and you still can't vote. I think that's so wrong. So mm-hmm. wrong. Um, uh, so the movie starts with the, with the, the statistic that, um, the U S counts for, uh, accounts for roughly 5% of the world's population and rough, but yet has roughly 25% of the world's prison population. Mm-hmm. Like, um, we're imprisoning, uh, a lot of people, although that's changing and the movie makes a, uh, really interesting and vile case that, um, uh, so okay, you you are more in tune with these sorts of things uh, that I'm about to say, um, but I so I had heard of the um, American <coughs> Legislative Exchange Council before, but I feel like you might know more of who they are. Uh, I don't think so. Okay, um, they're also referred to as ALEC, uh, and basically what they are, and this is not like again, this is not like conspiracy theory. This is what they are. It's people who are members of ALEC are corporations, not people who work for corporations, but Mm -hmm. corporations are members and lawmakers are members. And basically together with the corporate input, they write like template laws with like your state here or whatever. And then the legislators who are, um, part of it then go fill in the details and submit this as a law. Um, anyway, it it seems crazy, but, um, there was, and now I can't remember the name of the private, the world, the, the nation's largest like private prison was a part of this, uh, for a while. And I think a lot of these laws, uh, were enacted because of them, but then bad press, uh, actually a lot of corporations have left 
Alec recently because there has been a lot of hmm. a lot of bad press uh, around them, which is probably when I first started hearing the name Alec, but I didn't know until this movie um, what it, I didn't even know what it stood for. Uh, but now there's the I'm gonna get the name of the company wrong, but it's like the American Bail Corporation that makes money off of like um, not just bail, but like uh, monitoring equipment and like ankle mm-hmm. bracelets and stuff. And now you're basically, you're seeing like legislation coming from Alec that is actually about getting people out of prison, but into like parole situations or house arrest situations. Yeah. And, and it's being spurred by these corporate interests. Um, uh, it's really crazy. Would you say that's a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, I guess getting people out of prison is better than people being in prison. But I do think, I know you and I aren't. So you're saying free market capitalism once again wins. Uh, uh, you no, know, no, because I don't corporate think, interests no, uh, will fix everything. Interests, no, because they made the problem in the first place. <laughs> and this is the point of the movie is it's showing how as the public mindset changes, the methods of repression change, but there's always methods of, of repression. Um, and that's one of the other things about prisons that I hate is that they're, they're essentially sweatshops. Like mm-hmm. you can pay a prisoner almost nothing. You don't, you don't have to pay them. Right. They work, you know, there are corporations that like Victoria's secret is one, like a lot of Victoria's secret stuff is made in American prisons, um, by prisoners who are making way, way less than minimum wage. Hmm. Um, that infuriates me. Um, but, uh, the other point I was going to say, Oh, about it coming out this election. That's, um, and this is why I really respect David DuVernay. Again, by the end, the point is don't vote for vote for Donald Trump. But to her credit, when she gets to the 90s and the crime bill, she is perhaps harder on the Clintons than she is on anyone else. Yeah. Uh, because the that, that 1994 crime bill, which was a federal crime bill, but then went on to inspire a lot of state crime bills, which is why we get like mandatory minimums already existed, but this like – um, calcified them a little more and then there's the three strikes and you're out thing which has been disastrous yeah. uh, for California and for other states that um, uh, uh, adopted it um, so to her credit she's very very harsh on on the Clintons and I want to uh, read a quote from the movie oh look at you um, this is also just something you wouldn't I didn't expect one of the talking heads says the following sentence no one well, sorry, I already scratched it out because I already used it in my notes. Um, I used my review. No one who is white understands the challenge of being black in America. That's Newt Gingrich who said that. Yeah. Um, it, it just it just seems so funny to me that like it's like the reverse of the '90s, like uh, or or it, yeah, the Clinton is being uh, uh, Bill Clinton is being demonized by a uh, by a liberal, and Newt Gingrich is the voice of reason. Um, <laughs> When he, it's one of the reasons uh, I always like Newt. I don't like that he's uh, such a company man at the moment, but uh, there are things that I've always liked about him as far yeah. as a willingness to say stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, and he, yeah, he. I would say Newt Gingrich comes across really well. I would say Grover Norquist does not, but um, uh, I guess good for him for sitting for an interview. <laughs> but how but, could you with a name like that? <laughs> you're just you're just made to be a villain yeah. in a Norman Jewison film. Yeah, yeah, uh, and I guess uh, maybe part of it is that. I don't know. You never know with, with documentaries, like what footage was used and wasn't used. Like Grover Norquist seems to be basically saying, no, that's not true. No, Republicans didn't do that. No, the government didn't do that. Right. No and I don't know if, if he actually did elaborate on that at all. And she just mm-hmm. didn't use it. But, um, basically all Grover Norquist, uh, within the movie is able to offer is just 
just to disagree, but not really offer anything. Else. No. So I don't know if that's editing or what or what. But uh, I've gone on way too long. But um, yeah. uh, the movie's um, yeah, really good. Uh, and like I said, by the end, it does say like Hillary Clinton, to her credit, has publicly said that these things were uh, harmful and has said that she. Um, shouldn't have there's a whole thing about her using the term super predator which is like mm-hmm. a racially coded uh, word that was going around in the 90s um and she's and so the movie's like basically the movie i think what david verne is saying is like yeah uh, i'm not totally okay with the clintons but the other option is this sure and at least hillary clinton has recognized uh the the damage so um uh, it it basically the movie's uh, basically a really impassioned argument to say vote for the lesser of two evils which (laughs) boy isn't that like a passionate argument about one of the most cynical uh, prospects that uh, a person has yeah uh it's a really terrific documentary it's on it's on netflix uh probably when you're here not when we're recording this but it is probably when you're hearing this okay so having watched the uh and reviewed and you can find it at battleship uh having reviewed the new scream factory release of john carpenter's the thing uh i took the liberty liberty of rewatching the 2011 remake uh oh i'm sorry it's officially it's not a remake it's not even a sequel it's a, apparently a prequel right uh to the thing called the thing uh the director of which uh, I cannot, I can't recall his name, uh, nor should I. He directed a few short films and this, and that is it. Oh. Um, which is, uh, unfortunate. I always feel bad when somebody doesn't get work, but what's, what's interesting is that if I hadn't seen the original, uh, the, the John Carpenter thing and I watched this, it'd probably be an effective little thriller. Uh, but when you watch the two of them, you know, back to back more than anything, I find it a a very instructive and, and interesting, um, uh, comment on how horror has changed over the years. You know, it was a 29 year difference between the two of them. Mm -hmm. And one thing about, uh, the original thing is that it's very, it's very quiet. It's very methodical. There's a nice deliberate tone there's a mounting dread and paranoia and you know, it's, that's all very good. Um, and then this new one, they just, they clearly just do not have the patience for that, you know? And I don't necessarily blame the the director. I blame just the studio or, or maybe it's just that, you know, uh, the, the film is, just trying to do what the other, what other horror movies do right now. You know, it's when you think of Halloween or alien or the thing, or even Texas chainsaw massacre, you know, uh, which gets Mm -hmm. into stuff relatively quickly. I mean, so much of this stuff is just set up. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think a lot of horror movies now wouldn't, wouldn't go for that. And so, in watching the thing, also there's there's well, the. You said, I mean, you said, but there's a lot of in the indie horror movement. There is a lot of that, like yeah, um, which is clearly inspired by so many movies from the the eighties and seventies yeah, yeah. and that kind of thing. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. But in mainstream horror, yeah, it's. But at the same time, you know, you get stuff like Don't Breathe, which is kind of a stripped down thing, and it it jumps into it 
Yeah. Kind of like probably within about 15 minutes there in that house. Yeah. Uh, I I guess that's, we're splitting hairs here, but mm -hmm. I feel like don't breathe is more of a thriller with sure. Sure. Uh, it's informed by horror. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'd probably say that as well. Um, Um, but like there's a new movie out this weekend that everyone should see called under the shadow. It's an Iranian horror movie. And that's, yeah, there's nothing. I don't think there's anything supernatural in that movie in the first half. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it's, so in watching the 2011 thing, it's hard. It's hard for me to even judge it objectively, um, <clears throat> because it's just it's it's inviting comparison. It's called the thing, and because it's not a remake. Because I feel like if you do a remake, then you are resetting the rules. But this is a prequel, right? You know, and basically the events of this, uh, the, the, the events of the, the 1982 version begin moments after this movie is over. And so, so it is inviting you to, to think about these two films in the same world. And I just can't, I cannot believe that these two, uh, movies exist in the same world. Uh, and some of it has to do with the use of practical effects versus CG. I think it's a fair, I think it's a fairly good use of CG, but there is something to be said for an actual yeah. thing being in the same physical space as the actors. It makes a huge difference. Um, but yeah, so it's, so I'm, I'm kind of torn on it. Other, uh, ultimately I think it's just not a very good movie. Um, but when you compare it to the, the, the 82 version, like, yeah, it just, it doesn't hold up at all. All right. Um, I spent too long talking about 13th, so I won't spend too much time talking with this one because there's not much to say except what a disappointment. Uh, the girl on the train. Yeah. Is, it, yeah, the, everything you've heard is true. The reviews are true. It is, uh, a, it is a mess. Um, it is not worth your time. It is, uh, occasionally laughable. Um, it's a shame. Uh, I liked, I liked Tate Taylor's last film, which was, uh, get on up the uh, James Brown uh, biopic. Um, that one had a lot of life to it. This one feels, I mean, at this point it's, if it already, I mean, reviews have just started coming out and it already feels hackneyed for me to compare it to, uh, unfavorably to gone girl, but that's clearly like this movie. That's clearly the direction he was as a, as a journeyman. This is the, yeah. uh, the, the, the rubric he was, working under was no. make a gone girl type of movie. Um, and so it, it, it's trying to get that, like, uh, that moodiness and that like, um, same color palette and, uh, trying to have difficult characters, but the characters are so broadly and flatly defined. Um, the movie's style only further confuses it. Like there's nothing to get like, horrible things are happening and have happened to these people and there's nothing to get invested in because nothing is presented with anything beyond the superficial. Mm-hmm. Um, there's really bad voiceover. It's a bummer. Yeah. I, uh, I found it to be a real bummer. Now I know you avoid trailers. Did you happen to see the trailer for that? And uh, if so, did you watch, did you see it before or after, you know, do you want to know something? The day after I saw the movie, I was at work and I was like, I should watch the trailer and I started watching the trailer and then I got distracted by work. And so I, I never watched the whole trailer. I guess. I mean, that trailer definitely is intriguing and, and it, I mean, just 
it feel it definitely feels like it's trying to be Gone Girl, and yeah. you know they're both based on these books that uh, you know kind of airport no- uh, novels that are yeah. admittedly apparently both very good and huge hits. Yeah, but uh, and then yeah, my like, wife okay, read we've got Girl a- on the Train, and she loved the book, and she was not she saw the movie with me. She was not uh, not uh, yeah. pleased. Yeah, as it turns out, uh, uh, if you get David Fincher in there, it does make a difference. Uh, yeah, or maybe Gillian Flynn's a better. Uh, no, I don't know. I guess I'm not. Uh, I like Emily Blunt. Yeah, uh, I normally like her, and there's just not much for her to to work with here. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of who else is in the cast. That's uh, Edgar Ramirez mm-hmm. is good um, in most movies. Not in this. Justin Theroux is. Uh, I mean, Justin Theroux maybe is giving the. I don't want to say the best performance. Cause I think Emily Blunt's giving the. She's giving the performance that has the most shading to it mm-hmm. you know but i think justin throw maybe is fitting in in terms of a performance being a utilitarian thing being yeah. like i have to behave a certain way right. in order for the story to work yeah justin throw does the best job of that okay who do you know who adapted it uh i don't know I, that would be interesting because yeah. i know that uh well, jillian flynn or gillian flynn i don't remember uh yeah I know that she wrote the script as well. Well, how about you talk about your next movie while I look at it? Okay. So I saw Tim Burton's Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. I'm intrigued. It's pretty good. Yeah? It's not great, but it's... I didn't see Big Eyes, but I feel like this is the best movie he's made in a while because I think he's... He feels engaged to me. Like, the character... he, He seems interested in these characters as people with emotions and wants to engage them on that level. Um, you know, as always, you know, really interesting art direction, but it's not just, it doesn't feel like Tim Burton, everything about Alice in Wonderland felt like Tim Burton being like, all right, I guess I'll just do this thing. You know, I got to give it that Barton Fink feeling uh, to to put it in those terms. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and this, however, it feels like certain things are scaled back whilst it's still undeniably a Tim Burton film in tone, in look, but it doesn't feel perfunctory. It doesn't feel obligatory. It feels like he, he's actually making choices to make them, uh, the house look this way or to shoot this shot a certain way, uh, and to direct these actors a certain way. And so, uh, the story is very convoluted, but, but there are enough, there are characters that are very interested, interesting. And I'll say this, uh, Eva green who plays Miss Peregrine, really interesting performance there because she is, you know, the protector of all of these children, but she doesn't feel very safe. There is a, there's a quality to her performance that see that seems vaguely predatory. And I don't mean like, you know, sexually predatory. I mean, like it just seems like if it turned out that she was in fact a villain, I wouldn't be surprised, but she isn't Willy Wonka. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's a really neat idea. And it's just under the surface. It's just little glances, uh, that she gives here and there. It's, it, it is not an amazing film, but it's, it, and I'm not even sh- sure I'd say it's a return to form, but it's a, it was a very pleasant surprise. I think we're taking my nephew to the pumpkin patch this weekend. Okay. I think I might try to sell him and my wife on, hey, want to go to the movies after? Yeah. It'd be like, oh, it's like a Halloween thing. We're going to go to the pumpkin patch, and then we'll go see this kind of offbeat, weird movie yeah. that has some... Uh, 
Is he frightened easily? Oh yeah, he does actually. There's like some. some in, he doesn't like the more intense stuff. There's some creepy monsters uh, in this. All right. Well, we'll it, see. it might not be for him. We'll see. Um, uh, the other option option is take him to see the um, Terrence Malick uh, IMAX uh, thing. Obviously, that's the one to go with. Although that has a lot of monsters in it, you never expect it. It has but, dinosaurs. Uh, yeah, and they're just. But it's like. It's like uh, the scene from uh, Jurassic Park in the kitchen. Just all, the whole movie is that. <laughs> uh, all right. I watched a terrific film, uh, Tyler. I don't think you've seen it, but you gotta, you, you got to see it. It's a 1985 film directed by Paul Schrader called Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters. Mm. It's available from the Criterion Collection, uh, which means it's on Hulu, and that's how I watched it. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, is a, it is a biopic, um, technically, of... Uh, this man Mishima, I forget how you pronounce his first name. It starts with a Y, uh, with a Y, um, who is a um, writer and um, uh, also a big um, political activist um, in, in Japan. Um, who uh, I won't give it away, but is I get from what I understand in Japan, he's as famous for his books as he is for the way that he died. Mm. Um, and so the movie. Uh, this is why I say it's a biopic, I guess. It's very uh, unconventional. Um, the The movie takes place on the present day is the last day of his life. It starts in the morning and goes up to the last day of, of his life. Um, but it also has flashbacks of his life up to that point. But then it also has um, adaptations of his stories in it. Mm-hmm. So there are like three there it's a life in four chapters yeah uh and so each of the first three chapters is focused mostly on an adaptation of a story that he wrote mm-hmm. to illustrate different things and then the final chapter pretty pretty much takes place entirely on the last day of his life mm-hmm. um and uh paul schrader and the composer philip glass who did the score nice um do kind of like a cook thief wife lover thing where they're very specific. Like the present day last day of his life stuff is very sort of naturalistic looking. Mm. The adaptations are very expressionistic and, uh, but in like Garrett, like brightly colored, but also like, um, kind of like a, um, I guess kind of like not to this degree, but kind of like a, uh, what was the dogville? Like, okay, sure. So they're supposed to be in the real world, but they're taking place on obvious minimalist sets. Mm-hmm. They're not as minimalist as Dogville, which literally just have like the outlines, right? right? Like yeah. of buildings taped. Like there are sets, but they're clearly not, you know, realistic. When he's like, at one point, uh, a character in one of the stories is arrested and is being interrogated in a jail cell, but it's literally just a cage surrounded by a bunch of empty cages on a big black, like empty soundstage. And so it's, that's the kind of stuff. And then, uh, yeah. So, so I said the, and the flashbacks are in black and white, mm-hmm. uh, but Philip glass also uses <coughs> different instrumentation. Oh, nice. Uh, like the, uh, I'm not sure what the musical terms are. Like the motifs will be the same, sure. but, um, like the flashbacks are, um, I think, entirely like just cello and then like the present day is something else. And then it's only in the stories that you get a full orchestra. Oh, nice. Um, it's, it's such a, such a cool movie. This does not sound like the Paul Schrader. I know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's exciting, but like, it's just, uh, 
I have a very clear idea of Paul Schrader as a writer and director in my mind, and this does not fit with it. Yeah. Uh, and it isn't, you know, it's entirely in Japanese. Now, from what I understand, there was, uh, and this is probably still available, I don't know if it's on the Blu-ray, because like I said, I watched it on Hulu. Um, the American version at the time, the narration, because there's narration in it, um, voiceover, it, it's mostly in the stories. It's, mm-hmm. There's like a narrator telling the stories. Uh, it was Roy Scheider in the American okay. version. But uh, here is a Japanese uh, right. actor. The entire movie is Japanese. Um, so yeah, definitely check it out. Uh, it's awesome. All right. Uh, so I watched... Okay, so now we... <laughs> You'll be able to tell uh, from one movie journal to the next as I'm recounting the movies I've seen. You'll be able to tell where I shift from my my life movies and my school movies. Uh, so I watched Vincent Minnelli's Meet Me in St. Louis. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, so we just jumped back uh, several decades from what I uh, have been seeing. Yeah. Um, have you ever seen it? Um, I never have. You're, By from the way, Saint, you're from St. Louis. I am from St. Louis. Um, um, Girl on the Train was adapted by Aaron Cressida Wilson, who um, uh, also adapted Men, Women, and Children, the Jason Reitman movie that no Ooh, one liked. Which I heard is um, terrible. Uh, it's, that's one of those movies that it's like, no, I know. Okay, it's not good, yeah. but everyone hates it so much that I feel like I want to defend it. Sure. Because uh, I feel like people were dismissing it too easily. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's not doing what everyone says it's doing. It still doesn't mean it's good, but anyway. Uh, but she also adapted uh, Secretary from 2002, which is oh, what okay. I like. Okay. Um, so she's not do- she's not new to adapt- adaptation, if No, that's else. apparently, yeah, that's her, okay. her bread and butter, I guess. So, uh, yeah, Mimi in St. Louis is uh, my, my big takeaway from the film. First off, it's a lot of fun. Um, but my big takeaway is one that I'm sure you can you can relate to, which is... Oh, I miss Technicolor. Like, <laughs> oh, it's so gorgeous. Yeah, uh, I was very, I was very happy uh, to have seen a really nice. Uh, might have been, it might have been like the Blu-ray. It might have been a really nice uh, print down at uh, UCLA. I don't know, but um, you know, the use of music is quite. Well, they it, do a lot of you know archiving and restoration at UCLA. Yes, That's, they do. Yeah, largest uh, film archive in of any school in the country, I believe. Good for them. Um, uh, I think I, I, I believe they said that. Uh, Dozens of times uh, when they were uh, when well, I went on the visit. The largest day. film archive of any school in the country. I'm working you. on it. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> a DVD is not an archival <laughs> format. So, um, you know, it's it's hard to explain what the film is about. It's actually not very high concept, and some musicals really can be. It's just this family in St. Louis uh, in the early 1900s, right before the the World's Fair, and so it'll be 1904. Yeah, so this takes place in 1903 as they are getting ready for that. Uh, And it's just kind of family life. Uh, It it takes place over the course of a year. So you've got summer. I think it ends. Oh, does it end? Yeah, it ends uh, in in spring. And so, um, and it's just, you know, these these young girls like trying to get a, trying to get like guys to notice them and that kind of thing. Yeah. uh, Judy Garland is, of course, in the film, and she's uh, marvelous. And, oh, shoot, I should have looked this up. Uh, I believe second build uh, in the film is this very young girl, Margaret something or other. Um, you'll probably get there faster as you tend to meet me 
in Margaret O'Brien. Yeah, yeah you, you beat me. Uh, and she is, I can't even explain, because I know that I have both a weakness and a disdain for adorable moppets. <laughs> uh, you know, when they're, when they're great and they're naturalistic, I mean, I'm a total sucker for them. But when they feel like a device, I hate them more than uh, anything else in life, um, including the concept of death. So, uh, but she is very, she's very naturalistic uh, and just charming as hell. And she just says a, just adorable things. But, and they have her be a certain degree of intelligent, but not wise beyond her years, nor do they play down her uh, intelligence. It's very, it's a really delightful, uh, character in a film that is generally delightful. You know, you get, uh, it's full of songs that were not necessarily written for the film, but there's a couple, I I think, uh, clang, clang, clang went the trolley is from that musical. Uh, I'm not, don't quote me on that, but, uh, I was very happy. I saw it. I'm not much of a musical guy. Um, but it's just such a, the, the film is just light as a feather and it's just a very pleasant experience. I was right. very happy. I saw it. All right. Um, next up for me, I saw a movie that, uh, I probably won't spend much time on or maybe I'll spend two hours on it because okay. I don't know. I know that I love it. Okay. Um, I don't know what to say about it yet. Um, luckily I have some time before I have to write a review. Um, I saw Paul Verhoeven's new film L. Oh, okay. Starring Isabel Huppert as um, a woman who, uh, I, mean, I would say she is raped at the beginning of the film. Literally, the film begins mid her being raped. That's Ugh. how the movie starts. Damn it, Verhoeven. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> um, and, but, and the movie is, that's, if you're going to do that, you have to be a, like a Paul Verhoeven level of no compromise as a filmmaker. Like he's... Uh, and luckily you've got Isabel Cooper, which I don't think I put on my list. Did she make the list uh, anywhere uh, on the, uh, no, she, a few people submitted her. It's funny. I like, if we did the list after L comes out, I mm. wonder if she would be higher on the list because I'm realizing that Isabel Cooper is one of my favorite actresses of all time. Hmm. Um, and she's so fantastic here. Um, because yes, the movie starts with her. Um, a man has come into her home, assaulted her in her home and raped her and left um and she gets up and then takes a bath and then she orders some sushi and her son comes over and they eat sushi and she like it's a few days before she even mentions it to anyone but she also she has the locks changed in her home just to be like it's really hard to figure out where she is with this yeah um and then uh i don't want to give too much more away you learn some more about her past that is not necessarily doesn't make you, there's nothing that's going to make you not feel bad that she was raped, but like, <laughs> like her as a naturally sympathetic person, it becomes a little more, uh, muddled, muddied like the, hmm. but you still like, I, I can't, I can't say that much about it. I still need to think about it more before I write a review, but it's, it's, um, in the, even though it's not the, you know, big studio, Paul Verhoeven, uh, right. you know, Robocop and Starship Troopers and Hollow Man and stuff like that. He's still a very bold filmmaker. Yeah. Um, and he is also still, by the way, uh, not, uh, going to turn his head away from a little gore. So, uh, when, uh, when it comes to gore, 
he uh, he zeroes in on it. I was, but it's 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 one of the most challenging films that I've seen in recent months. I was going to ask you along those lines, actually, because you know we're we're we begin with a rape, and there's just there are certain things. I mean, you know, I've seen I've seen rapes in movies and on TV and that sort of thing, and it can be a remarkably you know the degree to which a, a, a filmmaker shows it uh, yeah. can can really set the tone for the rest of the film. And if it's actually starting with that, and here's the thing: when I think of Paul Verhoeven, mm-hmm. I think of a of a director who, if maybe not exploitative, but not super far off. Like, I, well, yeah, I mean, it, he, it seems weird that he would be making this film. He includes a lot of. Um, salacious detail or extravagant detail when it comes to both sex and gore in his mm-hmm. movies. He always has. Yeah. But I always think he uses it thoughtfully, not necessarily tastefully, but not distastefully. Like that's why I'm saying it's hard to grapple with. Cause I think, uh, now obviously we're, um, uh, neither of us is uh, a rape victim, I guess that I know of. Um, <laughs> you know what? I'm going to put your mind at ease. <laughs> okay. You're correct. Um, so it's you know it's different for us i i can't i can't you know um i imagine if 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 you're worried about being you know something being triggering to use that term mm-hmm. like i'm not sure how much context matters in that case right but I, a lot of the complaint about the way that rape is used in a lot of movies is that it's either a um a, a sort of plot point like it's just like used to move the story from one level to the next or it's used like with game of thrones often it's almost like uh, a sense of local color like yeah you know like oh yeah this is a world where women get raped all the time which yeah. is by the way that's the world we live in um but uh and that's why you know when people have talked about good uh, examples speaking of men being raped the first season of outlander mm-hmm. um had um t- two episodes back to back the first one dedicated entirely to the act of a man being raped yeah. by another man. And the second episode dedicated entirely to the fallout from that. Yeah. Like it was respectful. And I well, feel like Oz featured tons of, of male rape. Right. Um, but I, 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 Oz, I can't remember how well it, uh, explored that thing. There's, but, Cause what I'm talking about is like the, not treating it as something that just like happens and is just, uh, perfunctory. No. Like, so yes. Um, L is a movie that features very explicit uh, rape, okay. but it also is a movie that is entirely devoted to the aftermath of that. Right now, the complication comes from the fact that Isabelle Huppert um, plays a character who does not at all react to this in the way that you would expect someone to. Right. Um, you know, this isn't a movie about like uh, PTSD or anything like that, or maybe it is. And maybe the PTSD happened earlier in her life. I don't want to give too much away. David, having not seen the film, let me, uh, uh, let me throw this out there. She doesn't respond the way we expect, uh but let me also, let me swap out words. She doesn't respond the way we demand. Right. Yeah. That's, that's something that I have thought of actually, Which, which any, any kind of trauma, Rape or, you know, uh, grief is obviously a, a pet theme of mine uh, uh-huh. in film. Uh, and just we either want people to be like totally crushed or just get over it quick or whatever. But like this kind of weird thing, it's just like I can't get a read on you. And if I can't get a read someone who this didn't happen to, 
uh, I'm really uncomfortable with this. So can you please give a reaction so that I feel better? Uh, I think you're, you're, you're helping me write my review maybe. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, so definitely check it out. Also, um, when it comes out, uh, it's, it's a really, really good, Paul Verhoeven's a great filmmaker. Um, I also need to, I, I've done a little bit of looking online. I'm not entirely sure why the movie is called L. <laughs> um, her character's name is Michelle, but no one calls her L in the mm. movie. She's called Michelle the whole time. Sounds like the film is getting a little familiar with her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so maybe it's something I missed. Maybe there's something in the movie that's really obvious or, or maybe it's a French thing that's going over my yeah, head. Yeah, that's yeah, possible. Um, which Paul Verhoeven had to like relearn French to make the movie because he, you know, he's European, but he's not French. He's Dutch, right? Eh, they all speak everything over there. Dutch. Um, but yeah, he, uh, uh, apparently had a, from what I've read, had a great experience and wants to make more movies in France. So, uh, good for him. Yeah. What's the last last movie he made? Black book, which is 10 years ago now. Black book. Um, that was the one that was in Dutch and German. It was the, um, I never saw it, but it was like the the anti-Nazi like, um, okay. Yes. Yes. uh, All right. Which I heard good things about. Uh, yeah, I heard good things as well. Um, before, but he hasn't made a movie um, in America since Hollow Man, which was 2000. 2000. Just 2000, yeah. yeah. Uh, All right. Yeah. All right, so what's next for you? Next for me is, and I, I asked you beforehand if, if I should include this. I think you should. So there's a movie called Illusions. It is a short film. It's 30 minutes long. It was made in 1982. It was made at UCLA by UCLA... Uh, uh, student who's gone on to make a number of films. Her name is Julie Dash, and she's made uh, a number of films, often about race. Uh, Did she make Daughters of the Dust? That sounds kind of familiar. Uh, maybe I looked her up, and then I, but I've but none of the titles have stuck with me. Um, but yeah, and so it's, yeah, Daughters of the Dust, which has um, gotten a lot of attention lately for a couple reasons. One, there's a new restoration coming out okay. and also because apparently daughters of the dust was a big influence on beyonce's lemonade like visual album oh, okay um you know about that right we are going to be discussing it in this class actually really? yeah. okay um i don't know sometimes you don't know the same pop culture stuff that i know so oh, like, I, everyone knows lemonade right but i know vaguely uh about it yes okay. well she uh, made an entire an album that mm-hmm. is also an entire like album length music video yeah it's a oh, that's neat visual album that aired on hbo um and apparently I haven't watched all of uh, Lemonade because I don't have HBO. Well, mm-hmm. I guess I kind of do. Um, but um, apparently it was very, uh, one of the big influences on it was Daughters of the Dust by Julie Dash. So that sounds that's, right. why, that's why I know the name Julie Dash. So, uh, but yeah, and so this film is shot in black and white and it is about uh, this this uh, African-American woman in the Hollywood studio system in the 1940s who can pass. She's mm. very light skinned and does not necessarily, she doesn't necessarily lie to people, but she lets them make certain assumptions. And, uh, and so she's just an executive and it's, and it's essentially about her experience. Uh, one, one particular experience where, uh, uh, they're making a musical and this, uh, beautiful, uh, well-dressed uh, woman on the screen, like there's something wrong with the, uh, with the sound and so they actually need to bring in a singer to match what's on the screen as opposed to the other way mm-hmm. um and so uh 
so the singer they bring in for this very nice, uh, attractive, uh, white woman is this young black woman who apparently does all, who, who sings, who does all of this singing, uh, but is never actually on screen. And so there's some, there's some really interesting stuff. There's visually, there's some really fascinating stuff. There's, uh, there's a sh- uh, stuff that provoked, uh, debate and disagreement, uh, in, in our class. Um, the, uh, where our main character is in the sound booth. Uh, we're, we're, we're watching, uh, the young woman sing and we're seeing what's up on screen and just everything else just falls to black but the one thing that we do see is the reflection of our main character because we're basically in the sound booth and there's glass separating mm-hmm. us from this. And we see her reflection. And there's just there's definitely an element that like she is championing this young woman, but not to the point that she's saying, hey, we should put her in front of the camera, you know. Right. And so I kind of so that shot where like, oh, there's what we're seeing on screen. There's the real life. There, there's the, the true story behind it. And then there's this woman who feels kind of at odds with herself and could be possibly perpetrating some of the, uh, like racial, uh, divide in Hollywood as she tries to undercut it. Um, so there's, there's a lot going on in the film. Unfortunately, in the last scene, I think the characters just say everything, uh, which is like, Oh, you had such a really nice one shot after another of like a perfect visual representation of what's going on and, and occasional lines here and there, but like you just come, it came out and said it, damn it. Mm-hmm. It just really bummed me out. <laughs> that always bums me out when that happens. So, it's but like, it's, no, I already got it. Now I feel yeah. like, yeah, but, uh, but it's a, it's a, I don't know if you can find it online. You might be able to, it's, it's as far as short films, it's actually one that is fairly well known, uh, through the years, okay. probably because the director went on to do uh, other things, but, uh, it's called illusions and it, it was, it was pretty good. Okay. My, uh, final in- entry in this, uh, movie journal. Um, no, I had just, as I mentioned, I just watched that Paul Schrader film. So I was in a Paul Schrader mood. Sure. Also, uh, there was a discussion <laughs> at work. What horrible mood is that? Uh, yeah. There was a discussion among my, a couple of my coworkers about what's your favorite Martin Scorsese movie. And I've been saying for a long, long time that my favorite Martin Scorsese movie is The Last Temptation of Christ. That's mine. But I had not watched it in a long, long time. Mm. Um, so I threw in my Blu-ray. And uh, yeah, still my favorite. Yeah. It's uh, amazing. Uh, it's it's terrific. And there are things that I... Uh, you've, prob- you've probably thought about this more than I have when, I, when you watch the movie. Okay. Um, it never really sunk into me that, oh, uh, like, we see and hear Satan talk to Jesus mm-hmm. all the time throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. Jesus is always talking about God talking to him, but we are never privy to God talking to him right. in the movie. I never really thought about it. Like, I guess I, that's one of those things that, like, if you said it to me, I'd be like, yeah, yeah, I know that. But I never really thought about that while watching the movie. That yeah. he... um. He barely even really talks to other people about Satan talking to him. He talks right. to the one guy, um, uh, somewhat early on when he first, the first time he goes out to the desert and he meets the, uh, guy who had already died. Yeah. And the next day he's talking to one of those, I guess they're like monks of some sort. Yeah. Um, and he talks about the voice who's telling him, uh, who's filling him with pride. Yeah. Uh, and that's Satan. But other than that, he, he talks about God talking to him, but we only see Satan talking to him. Would you like to, uh, would you like uh, some thoughts on that? Yeah, I definitely would. 
if you want to see Jesus as God's voice on earth, then yes, he doesn't talk much about God talking to him. He, he talks about the nature of God. He talks about what God wants. Uh, and we don't hear God, but then in seeing Jesus uh, and what he says and what he does, we can infer what God has said. Or we can say very directly that this is what God is saying right now, whereas Satan is outside of that. And so uh, that's how we hear him. Uh, I don't know if that was their intention, um, but maybe, honestly, I wouldn't be surprised. Both of them, both Paul Schrader and Martin Scorsese were you know, raised in the church and probably brought a lot of that to, probably. It, they definitely brought a lot of that to the film. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but that's, it, it's a, that is a, a discussion that I had had with, with someone in the past. And, and that's, it's not like we settled on that, but that was, it's like, oh, that'd be an interesting idea if that was how, where people arrived. Um, and then I went back and I read my own Blu-ray review mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, of when it, when it came out and I was like, yeah, I, uh, this is, I might've stretched this out a little bit more if I wrote it now, as opposed to like six, yeah. you know, whatever, five years ago, um, but I was like, yeah, I, I was pretty right on. But one of the things I pointed out in my review that I had forgotten was that um, this is the rare sort of like biblical epic that remembers that it's also like a period piece and is like yeah. um, the the look and feel of the time seems very uh, tactile. Yeah, it, You know, there's a lot of like bugs landing on people while they're talking and stuff yeah. and everything's sort of dusty and, and, uh, worn down. Uh, it, it's, it's a great looking movie. Let me ask you this. The, the fact that so many characters speak with just a normal American accent, in fact, G- Jesus and, and all of his followers speak with uh, an American accent. Yeah. Only does that bother pilot, you one iota? No, uh, me either. Uh, only pilot and the f- fake guardian angel, I think speak with British accents. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so I don't know what uh, Scorsese has against the, the Brits. <laughs> well, the, I, pilot, the pilot scene is very, it's somewhat sympathetic to him. Or yeah. uh, I don't know about that's, that. That's one of my favorite performances ever is David Bowie as that's, pilot. That was I think be, he's great. You're getting to all the points I was going to make before I get oh, there, which sorry. is fine. No, because we're speeding things along that way. Um, yeah, that was another thing was I, um, uh, I've, I've said recently on the podcast that like I have like – David Bowie's death has maybe saddened me more deeply than any other celebrity. Like I've Mm -hmm. never had that kind of reaction. And I did have that feeling of just like when you lose someone, you know, close to you and then like some time goes by and you're not thinking about it every day and then something reminds you of it. And then you have that moment of like, Oh, I'm never going to get to do that with them again. And I kind of had that moment watching David Bowie here. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, like he would show up in movies like, I know you like the prestige to me. He's the only really good, like worthwhile part of the prestige. There's a lot of great but <laughs> aspects of it, but it's his performance. Like you could have played Tesla as a complete psychopath, <laughs> but he plays him as actually very, uh, very understanding. Yeah. Uh, and David Bowie <laughs> would just show up in these roles and be, uh, uh, amazing. Just like he would just show up and write amazing songs. Like he was, yeah. uh, we, uh, yeah, I think, I feel like we're still feeling the loss of, David Bowie and we will be for uh, decades to come. He has on screen. Cause I actually, uh, I'm, I'm becoming more familiar with his, his music over the course of the last few years. Um, but as a performer, he has an effortless charisma. Uh-huh. Like, I mean, how much, and I, and I don't say this in a, in a derogatory way. Like how much effort do you see 
him putting into pilot. Right. Yeah. None. You don't like, it's just seamless. Like he just is that character. And when there's just, I, for me, there's a natural resistance. Anytime like a musician acts to think, Oh, what a great natural actor. Like I, it's, it takes me, it took me a while <laughs> to see Will Smith that way, you know? Uh, but there musicians can make, it can, not always, but they can make really good actors just because for whatever reason, there's something they understand. Maybe perform, maybe performing on stage helps them to recognize like how best to engage an audience and that sort of thing. But, uh, but yeah, he, he absolutely had it. And once again, I've seen Merry Christmas, Mr. Uh, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, which I thought mm-hmm. was good. Not great. He's very good. In and it. that's one I think is great. And of course there's labyrinth and there's the prestige and a number of other films, but I do. And, uh, Twin Peaks Firewalk with me, yeah, obviously. Yeah. Uh, but I do think, I think my, my favorite performance of David Bowie's is in uh, Last Temptation. Yeah. Uh, and one last thing, I don't know if you have thoughts on this. I need to, uh, this is one of those movies I need to watch over and over again because uh, there's so much going on in it. But uh, a very crucial part of that discussion between Jesus and Pilate is shot with them facing away from the camera. Yeah. He sits down and they keep on having the discussion uh, about, you know, um, why Jesus says he's not like the zealots and David Bowie is saying uh, maybe not in methodology but in what you're going for mm-hmm. it makes no difference to me uh, and a huge chunk of that conversation is them <laughs> with their backs to the camera I don't know why that is but it's uh, really compelling I think it may I think it forces you to listen closer yeah um, you know you're not so reliant on your eyes to to tell you like what people are thinking and feeling as they're talking like you just have to pay really close to the words they're using. Yeah. Um, yeah, I all did right. do, I did obviously do a more than one lesson episode about last temptation. So people can all, uh, you know, if you want to hear me talk about it for an hour, yeah, you, uh, should, you can do that. You should do that. So, uh, my last film, is a Charlie Chaplin film that I have not seen before, which is Monsieur Verdoux. I've never seen it either. It is a very, very interesting movie. Uh, it is a talkie, uh, and it is in fact, very talkie. Uh, <laughs> there's, even when he made talkies before, they're definitely there are extended sequel. Even like Great Dictator, which ends with this very, yeah. very large monologue. But when you think of some of the sequences in the Great Dictator that you really that that a person really loves, they are mostly silent, uh, or they 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 have a silent sensibility, like him. You know, playing as the 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 Hitler character you know, playing with the globe as though it were a balloon. Like that's a silent thing. Um, but, uh, but yeah, this one is, I mean, he's fully embraced like, all right, we're going to have a lot of dialogue and it's about this, uh, this man played by a chaplain who is, uh, married to a number of women, not because he loves them, but because he's, he needs to kill people. He needs to kill them and take their money. Uh, and he does like one at a time. He just kind of keeps them all. And then, you know, tells them he has a very specific job that takes him away uh, for long stretches of time. And then he'll come back. And when he needs money, it's like, okay, I think I'm done with this one. So I will, t- I will kill her and dispose of her body and take all of her money. Um, and it turns out in, in kind of, in something of a, half uh, a twist halfway through the film as you discover he he goes to talk to this one woman and it's his they're all actually his wife but this is his real wife Mm. and she's in a wheelchair and he has a son and it's very interesting because there's a brief flash of of sympathy for this character before you realize that like 
like the first place my mind went was Michael Corleone. Um, or just the, the, or just, uh, mafia people in general, which is like, oh yeah, they have families and they're trying to provide for their families. And the best way to do that apparently is to be an absolute monster. Yeah. Oh wait, no, that doesn't make sense. (laughs) Um, and so the film is not, it's a very, uh, understated comedy that I think actually owes a lot more to like the rules of the game than anything that Chaplin had done before. Um, in its in its sensibility there is some fun physical comedy that is that is in fact uh quite amusing um there's this weird little thing every time the character counts money it is an absolute delight uh just because like he 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 sorts through it comically fast and surprisingly loudly uh it's it's hard to it's hard to explain as is the case with so many wonderful silent gags you you really just have to see it to believe it but um but yeah, it's it's a it's a film. It is available on Criterion, so I saw it on Hulu. So if people have Hulu, they uh, uh-huh. Hulu Plus, they can watch it. Um, but yeah, I was I was I didn't I didn't necessarily love it, but there's a lot there to not merely recommend, but also to really uh, puzzle over. Uh, and then finally, uh, you have to do another a plug for your other podcast. <laughs> yeah, so I have a podcast called Worth Playing For. On it, uh, my wife and I talk about uh, Survivor. Uh, as of this recording, we haven't recorded this week's episode yet, but by the time this gets posted, it should be available. Um, uh, we'll, so, we'll be yeah, racing yeah, the clock. Exactly. We'll see. Uh, but yeah, big twist, uh, yeah, on this week's episodes, uh, not a twist, but a big, uh, a big, uh, blind side as they say. Uh, and at this point, uh, David, I feel like you'll have an appreciation for this. Okay. So. Uh, a few years ago when, uh, survivor contestants first started like getting on Twitter, uh, survivor as a show started embracing Twitter. And so like, you know, any, anytime somebody would say something particularly notable, it'd be like hashtag this or whatever. Uh, and so anytime there would be a blind side in the corner would say hashtag blind side, if you wanted to, you know, tweet about it. And a few years ago, there was this, this guy who said, he goes, who's talking about like, he just wants to play real safe. He's like, I don't want to get hashtag blindsided. And, fr- and, <laughs> and from then on, uh, you hear someone say that every once in a while is hashtag blindsided. So I thought I that it. was kind of funny.